Now, uh, yesterday, obviously, we celebrated Easter, and tonight, uh, we're continuing in our series, Lifted. You see the graphic right here up on the stage. Uh, this is song number five, and we're doing six total, so we are almost at the end of this series. Uh, this series has been a blessing to preach. Um, I've seen the Lord do a lot through it. I hope that it's been a blessing to you. Um, we've seen people come to know the Lord, and we're praying that more will. Uh, but it's been really cool to see what God is doing through a sermon series. It's all about worship and about the words we're worshiping and saying and looking at where those come from in Scripture. And so this is week number five, and I hope you'll get excited with me. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 20. <laughs> Hallelujah. Yes, we get excited about the Word. Here at The View, and if you're taking notes, I hope that you are. I have a few things I want to send home with you tonight that hopefully will encourage you, strengthen you, and maybe challenge you a little bit this week. If you're taking notes, the title is Sea of Victory. And this is the song that we're going to worship to right after uh, my sermon, I was telling some of our leaders a little bit ago that this is a song for me that I very much have enjoyed worshiping to over the years. Uh, it's a song that came out. Uh, it was big for me at the time it came out. I love the line that's in the song we're going to sing here in a few minutes where we sing out to God that you take what the enemy meant for evil and you turn it for good. I was at a time in my ministry, I think it was right around COVID. I have a hard time remembering. It was either right after COVID or somewhere in that time period where for me and my ministry, I was really wrestling with that and needing God to show up faithful at a time where I wasn't sure if he could. And that was a worship song that the Lord really used to encourage and strengthen me. Thinking about, right, where that line comes from, that's Genesis 50, verse 20. At the end of Joseph's life, he says, hey, what man meant for evil, God meant for good to bring about the current result, the survival of many, 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 many people. Right, all through Joseph's trials, he didn't see a lot of victories from a worldly standpoint, and then God's hand of favor started to show him what that would look like. He started rising up, gaining influence, and ultimately being able to rescue his family and forgive them. And so Joseph, along the course from 17 to 30 years old, saw God be faithful, but God's plan took a while to unfold. How many of you know that God's plan may take a while, but it's still worth it in the end? Amen. That's what we mean when we say sea of victory. Now for Easter, what's cool is last week we talked about the son of suffering. We talked about Jesus on the cross. We talked about the crucifixion. We talked about what Jesus went through. And if you'll remember, we talked about the seven statements that he made on the cross. Well, you have to look at all four Gospels to find them. And yesterday, I hope that you worshiped with us here at Bellevue or your church home, and we worshiped and celebrated the resurrection. That Jesus did not stay dead. He rose again, conquering death, conquering sin, and he's alive. And that's why Christianity has continued for 2,000 years to change people's lives. It's because of Jesus Christ. Not a religion and not a building, but Jesus Christ, the name and the work and the person of Jesus. That's what we hold to. That's what we cling to. That's where our hope is. And we celebrated that yesterday. But for me with this sermon, I've been very excited for what God's going to do tonight because I always wrestle with the Monday after Easter. I have since I became a Christian at 21 years old. When I gave my life to the Lord at 21, I began to fall in love with Easter. I love the pretty colors. I love the Easter eggs. I love getting the gift basket. I think the Easter bunny's creepy and Wolf Chase Galleria, but I love really everything else there is. And y'all know what I'm talking about. Some of y'all that live in Memphis have had your picture taken with the Easter bunny inside Wolf Chase Galleria. And that is a terrifying experience. That bunny is not loving. That bunny has a crooked tooth. <laughs> that bunny, and I hope there's not somebody in here like works for that company. You know, <laughs> that would be terrible. But man, I've done all of it, and I love Easter. But I realized, like as a Christian, especially towards the end of my uh, college experience, that Sunday is such a high, it's such a celebration, and then Monday we go right back to our routine so quickly. 
That's the great temptation, isn't it? Like we dress up in the colors, we go to church, we make a big deal out of it. People come to church who normally don't go. Praise the Lord for that. But then we get to Monday morning, and especially by Tuesday and Wednesday, that effect, that celebration, that remembering the resurrection and what this is all about has faded very quickly. And then we turn, and sometimes the highest of highs lead to the lowest of lows, right? You get high, you celebrate the resurrection, you're high on Jesus, you're excited for him, you're celebrating the Lord, you're worshiping him, and then you get to Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and temptation comes. Boom. And you fall into something you don't want to be in. You fall into sin. You fall into chasing after the world. And all of a sudden, you're discouraged. And I've seen it happen in my own life, and I've seen it happen in people of lives that I've loved. And so I love that we have a Monday night service right after Easter. This is a service I would never cancel. This is a service that's probably most important of the semester. Because as you have just yesterday celebrated Christ coming back from the dead, my challenge to you tonight is very simply this. What you celebrated on Sunday, how did it change you on Monday. What you claim to be the purpose and the point of your life on Sunday, did it change anything about your daily interactions today, tomorrow, and the weeks to come? Now in John chapter 20, I'll go ahead and tell you, we're going to find Jesus appearing to his disciples. And we're told that there are five appearances on G- of Jesus on Resurrection Day. You have to go through the Gospels to find each one. There's five appearances just on Resurrection Day. And here in John chapter 20, if you look with me, the disciples are gathered together, which is a great thing, praise the Lord. This was a command of Jesus that they stay together after his death. You'll remember Jesus prayed for the disciples' unity. He prayed for their love for one another. And now we find them all together, except they're not in a great place where we find them tonight. Now remember what they had witnessed, though, Right? When we start reading, we're going to see that they are hiding behind locked doors, that they are in fear, and really there's good reason, right? Like a lot, a lot of times they miss the teaching of Jesus when he would say, hey, the Son of Man must be glorified, right? I will be lifted up, right? Destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. Jesus told them that he was going to die and resurrect from the grave. But what they've just witnessed is what we talked about last week, the, the crucifixion of their friend, their leader, their rabbi, Right? You think about Peter when he is talking to Jesus in Matthew, I believe it's 14, 15, somewhere in there, where he's saying, hey, you are the son of God. Right? This is who many of them have professed as the Messiah. And they've just witnessed one of the most horrific deaths. Right? They've den- Jesus, Peter denied Jesus. Right? Many of them have ran. Judas betrayed him. And then Judas ends up committing suicide. Right? Like You see very clearly that they have witnessed a trauma. And now at this point in the story, on resurrection morning, they're hiding behind locked doors. Their confidence is non-existent. They're in fear. And Jesus is going to appear to them in this moment. And that's what I want to look at tonight. I want to give you three things that Jesus says to them after his resurrection. Three things. Last week, seven things he said on the cross. Tonight, three things that he says to his disciples that I believe apply to you and me. Look with me in John chapter 20. We're going to start in verse 19. This is the same day that the tomb was found empty. It says this, When it was evening of that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. Jesus came, stood among them supernaturally, and said to them, Peace be with you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. That's twice. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. 
Verse 24, but Thomas, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. A week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said again a third time just in this, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So if you're taking notes, number one, peace be with you. Three times in this text, Jesus says this. He says, peace be with you. Three times he says it. It's his greeting to them. Peace be with you. I love studying the resurrection because you think about the implications of Jesus rising from the dead, that at this moment he could have gone anywhere. He could have done anything, right? He's just conquered death. He's rose from the dead. He is truly the son of God. And he could go anywhere and he could do anything. And the thing he chooses to do is to go find his people, to go find his followers, to go find his disciples. Like his very first thing he does is he goes and he finds them. And even though there's an earthly barrier, there's locked doors there, that earthly barrier has no hold on Jesus. He goes right through it supernaturally. He finds his people. He finds his followers. And when he arrives, he says this statement. He says, peace be with you. Now, let me pose to you. Um, he, Jesus is not making a request or a suggestion. He's making a statement to him. Look at this quote. It says, he had faced and defeated all the forces which destroy the peace of man. As he said, peace be unto you, he was doing infinitely more than expressing a wish. He was making a declaration. He was bestowing a benediction. He was imparting a blessing. Jesus is telling them that there's a change in their current circumstances, right? Like he's not saying, hey, you should be peaceful, like find peace, change and adapt yourself to be one of peace. No, he's saying that peace is with you because I am with you. That when Christ appears, when Christ shows up, peace comes with it. It's a statement, it's a declaration that what Jesus has done, peace follows. And he is peace. And what he's stating is, Paul expands on it in Romans, and you'll see this in Romans 5, verse 1. It says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll leave this verse on the screen for a minute. Now, Paul is very clearly saying that there is a position we hold with God that determines our peace. That you and I have been made by a perfect God, and we have chosen sin, but we can be justified in the Lord's eyes. And through that comes peace. What you understand when you start studying scripture, students, is this, that having peace with God brings you the peace of God. That you and I, and understand this because this is very important to your faith, that when you have peace with God, that's when you experience the peace of God. There is no way to experience the supernatural peace that God offers until you have peace with him. Now, remember for a moment, how does that happen? You and me are sinful people. We continue to fall over and over. So what Paul is saying is that there is an eternal implication, that there is an eternal peace to be offered. 
And this is where we kind of water it down. When you hear sermons sometimes on, on worry and anxiety, we kind of water it down. And we kind of just give people the, hey, you know, pray whenever you get worried, which is great, but like pray whenever you get worried. But college students, there's something great, greater than just the worry you have each day. I would tell you there's something greater than just the peace you want to experience every day. Like when we think of peace, we think of, oh, not having any troubles that day or my problems being solved or I just need to have more faith that Jesus will be faithful. But no, students, no, 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 hear me. That peace that your soul is searching for is an eternal peace, meaning it's greater than your day-to-day life. You can have a peace in your eternity, right? Like you can have a peace with an eternal God, that your soul can be at peace, regardless of the day-to-day activities, regardless of what happens at your job, that you can be a person who is at peace, that peace does not come and go, that it lives in you through the Holy Spirit. And Paul breaks it down here. He says that when you have been justified by faith, meaning that when God looks at you, you are justified in your sins. That debt that you had has been covered by somebody else's blood, by the lamb's blood, the sinless, sinless love of Jesus. His blood has paid for you, that you can be in right standing with God because of what Jesus has done for you, which means when Jesus says in John 14, I have gone to prepare a place for you, a place for you in heaven, that there is an eternal security that you and I are supposed to live with, that you and I didn't just give our lives to Jesus for fire insurance to avoid hell, but that whatever happens in this world really doesn't matter in the end, no matter who hurts you or who says something to you or what happens in your life, If you know Jesus, because you have a peace with God. And when you have peace with God, you get to experience the peace of God. And the only way to have peace with the holy God as a sinful human being is to have the perfect, sinless Savior, Jesus, standing by your side as your Savior. And when you have him, you have an eternal peace. You have an eternal security. And this is where sermons on worry and anxiety bug me sometimes because we miss that. We just point people to memorizing Philippians 4, 6, and 7, which is great. Praise the Lord for that. But greater than just memorizing a couple verses that tell you not to worry, you have to come to a place where you are grateful you have a room in heaven. You have to come to a place where you realize that you are not going to hell because of what Jesus has done for you and because you are justified by faith. That is when a true peace begins to take over your body. When you realize that you have a place in heaven because you are in right standing with God because of what Jesus has done for your soul. He purchased you. He has a place for you. He loves you. There's nothing you did to earn it and you can't lose it because Jesus did it on the cross. As we said last week to tell us that it is finished. Hear me, if you want to overcome worry on this earth, you don't need to fix your mind on being a peaceful person on this earth. You need to fix your mind on the fact that you have a place in heaven when you die. Fix your mind on the fact that you have been bought, you have been purchased, and there is a destination that you are heading to. And that destination is eternity with God and eternity with Jesus who loves you and wants to spend it with you. Right? When you are justified by your faith in Christ, you are are at peace with God. Now, I'm going to talk about the day-to-day in a minute because we sin each day. We mess up, and that hurts our fellowship. But when you are in repentance and you are walking with the Lord and you have been justified by faith... You are a soul who is at peace with God. And when you're at peace with God, you get to experience the peace of God. Let that rule in your hearts and your minds. Because here's what Paul says, right? Skip forward a chapter. Three, actually. Romans chapter eight, verse six says this. Now the mindset of the flesh is death. 
But the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. Now, there's a daily, daily implication to this passage in Romans 8, right? Like here in this verse, Paul is talking about our day-to-day, right? Because when we're in heaven, we are glorified beings. We are in the presence of the Lord. We don't wrestle with flesh. But on this earth, we wrestle, we wrestle with flesh. That's a tongue twister. My goodness. We wrestle with it. And so as you walk through your life, you take this first step. That if Jesus says, peace be with you, that means first off, there's an eternal peace that's offered to you. That if you know God and you trust in Jesus as your Savior, you have the Prince of Peace. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of your body. Okay? There's an eternal implication to that. Now, what you would say to me is, then, Daniel, why do each day I still struggle with worry and anxiety? Why am I still afraid? Why am I still uneasy with things that are happening in my life? Well, I would point you to this. If we are not experiencing the Prince of Peace, if we are not experiencing the peace of God in our lives that's been given to us, we have to look at our decision-making every day. You have to look at your decision-making every day. Because if there is a spirit in your life, if there is a uneasiness in your life and it's worry and it's anxiety, you have to ask yourself the hard question, is your mind set on the flesh? Because that leads to what? Death. Any area of your life, when you follow the flesh, when you make decisions that chase after sin, you don't get to experience that peace that God is offering because you're choosing to put your faith in the world. What's so amazing about the gospel is when you find yourself caught up in lust, when you find yourself caught up in sexual immorality, when you find yourself caught up in the love of money or in building your name, and then you turn back to God and you say, God, I don't want these things. I've I've made an idol in my heart, and I don't want to live and bow down to this idol anymore. When you turn from that, God is always faithful to forgive you when you repent. Aren't you grateful for that? Amen. Hallelujah. I'm telling you, because we make bad decisions. Like across the board, every single one of us. We have made bad decisions. We will make bad decisions. It's not an excuse. But the reality is we have a God who redeems and restores us from those poor decisions when we set our mind on the Holy Spirit and we get to experience abundant life and peace. Jesus comes so we may have life and have it abundantly. So think about that. There's an eternal place for you in heaven if you're a believer. If not, we've prayed for you to give your life to the Lord. But number two, where you set your mind is going to determine if you experience that peace. But there's a third thing to Jesus' peace be with you. Remember what we said a few minutes ago, what he prayed for, for the disciples. And this is where it gets tricky. We've been talking about this, and this is a common theme the Lord continues to bring up in my sermon preparation. He prayed for the disciples to be what? I heard one person kind of whisper it. He prayed for the disciples to be what? Together, united, one. He prayed for them to love one another. So peace with God is the most important thing. Setting your mind on the spirit. But some of you, your peace is being robbed of you every day, and here's why. You don't have peace with others. There's an element that's missing. See, we must be close with God vertically. I had to think for a minute if that was vertically. <laughs> Sometimes I get confused on them horizontally, vertically. And then we have to be at peace with those around us, to our right, to our left. 
But when we have strife, when we have bitterness, ooh, that disrupts our peace. We think it's going to disrupt somebody else's, but it only ends up disrupting ours. Look at this. Jesus said this. I'm skipping ahead a little bit in my notes. This is Matthew 5, verse 9. It says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And then Paul says it at the end of his second letter to the Corinthians. He says this. His charge to him in chapter 13, verse 11 says, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, become mature, be encouraged, and be of the same mind. Be at peace. Be at peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Look at this. Paul ends his letter by telling the Corinthians to look at others, their brothers and sisters, and be one. Be at peace with them. And what happens from that, the direct result, is that the God of love and peace will be with you. See, I believe we don't have any reason. I'm not going to read into the scriptures and add something. But the disciples are together physically. We have no reason to assume in Scripture that there is strife or conflict between them. They don't rebuke Thomas for not being there, right? They don't say anything to him about that. They just tell him, hey, we've seen the Lord. We have no hint that there is division there. And what we see in Acts, we have to assume, we see that they are united. They go forth and spread the gospel. So we can't say they have strife. So when Jesus shows up to them gathered, he says, peace is with you. Peace be unto you. And I believe that is a fulfillment of his prayer that they would be one, that after his crucifixion, they are together. They could have spread out, they could have run, but they have come together. They're in fear, they're hiding, but they're together. And they also don't leave Thomas out of it. They don't go tell Thomas, yeah, man, you didn't miss much. <laughs> you're not behind, you're good. No, they tell him, hey, we've seen the Lord. You need to see him too. So we have to be one. And the only way to do that is through the power of the Holy Spirit within a community. See, a lot of churches, and sometimes it's us, sometimes it's just anybody, we overhype up the community that we have. But community is not the end all. Community did not die on the cross for your sins. Jesus did. That's why I tell our leaders, don't go out there and tell people, man, there's a great speaker at The View. You got to come hear him. You know why? Somebody's going to come and they're going to be let down because I'm not funny enough. <laughs> I'll tell you, I'm not. I'm not going to make you laugh enough. Don't go out there and tell them, man, it's the greatest community you've ever experienced. It's not. We're broken. We're imperfect. For sure. Don't tell them about the lights. Don't tell them about the posters. No, go tell them that God is moving here and that is enough. The presence of the Lord. But it has to be through the Holy Spirit. So the last thing I'll point out to you with this peace is with you is that this Greek word that's being used for Jesus breathing on them, this is not an awkward or weird moment. It's a very intimate moment. It's a very close and personal moment that we don't understand really. We miss it when we read it. But that, that Greek word there is used twice in the Old Testament when you translate it. And it shows up once in Genesis chapter 2. This will be on the screen, verse 7. It says this, uh, then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And the man became a living being. Same word that's being used here for Jesus breathing on his disciples comes from Genesis chapter 2. You can see how intimate this moment is of breathing life. But not only that, Ezekiel 37, verse 9, you think about graves in the gardens and the dry bones. It says this, he said to me, prophesy to the breath, son of man, say to it, this is what the Lord God says. Breathe, come from the four winds and breathe into these slain so that they may live. Power, wisdom, authority has been given to the disciples in this moment through the Holy Spirit and it's because of their intimacy with Christ. But listen to this. Intimacy comes from proximity. You have to be close to feel someone breathe on you. And you can't experience that from a mile away. You've got to be close. 
And I would pose to you the reason why some of us are walking in strife and conflict and hurt and pain and discouragement is because we are not close enough to Jesus in proximity to experience the peace that he offers to us. There's so much more to just don't be worried. There's eternal implications to it. And I pray that you came in tonight and you are finding the peace that will change your day-to-day life. I'm a big Kobe Bryant fan. I love Michael Jordan. I love LeBron James. I'm a big Kobe Bryant fan, and I put a picture up here of him and Steph Curry when he was a kid. I said Steph Curry when he was a kid. He's a rookie. I said like he's 12 years old. And uh, I remember watching an interview with Kobe Bryant. I've watched probably every interview there is of Kobe Bryant. I'll be honest. If you're, if you're not a sports fan, Kobe Bryant's the greatest of all time. And uh, I, uh, I love watching Kobe Bryant interviews. I hear him from the back yelling. Uh, I love Kobe Bryant interviews. And one of the interviews, he was talking about Steph Curry. Now, you know Steph Curry. He's, I believe, a four-time NBA champion. He's the greatest NBA three-point shooter that the NBA has ever had. And they asked Kobe a few years back before Kobe passed away. They said, what do you see in Steph Curry that makes him so dangerous? Some of you may have seen this interview. And the one thing he said about Steph Curry that makes him so dangerous as a basketball player is his calmness. His calmness. And I was amazed that Kobe said that. He didn't even highlight his three-point shooting. His three-point shooting comes from a deeper place of being able to actually make shots under pressure. He didn't say his athleticism. He didn't say his quickness. He didn't say moving without the ball, which is so important for what Steph Curry does every game. He said what makes Steph Curry so dangerous is his calmness. He said he's not too high. He's not too low. He's just present. He's just right there in the moment. And under pressure, he's able to perform because he does not get worried. He does not get stressed. And he said that is what it makes Steph Curry so dangerous. Constance, I want to pose it to you this way. The peace of Christ is one of the most dangerous tools for a believer to truly operate from. Because when you're under pressure, a much greater pressure than an NBA basketball game, when you're under pressure, when life is beating you up, when family members die and it happens when your car breaks down and it happens when life just completely erupts and you don't know what to do, You need a peace that surpasses all human understanding so that you and I can operate from a place of calmness and wisdom in order to choose the Lord. Because here's what will happen if not. And this is my final thing, and I'm going to move on. If you are not a person who values living and making decisions from a calm, peaceful, built on the firm foundation of Christ person, then when something happens that is out of your control, your life and your decisions is going to be completely erupted. It doesn't have to be that one. There's a peace that is offered to us. But not only that, let me give you number two. Jesus says this to him. He says, as my, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. So the first one, peace be with you. And then number two, he says, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. This is John 20, verse 21. Now, in the same conversation, Jesus offers peace about what has happened and a mission that has been born. Now, imagine, conscience, bring the Bible to life. This is not just a historical book for you to learn knowledge from this is, a, this is God's divine word, and it is how he transforms lives. Imagine you are one of the disciples, and you have walked with Jesus over the last three years. Like, imagine all that you have seen. Like, I mean, put yourself there. You've seen the miracles. 
You've seen the persecution. You've seen the lies. You've seen his name tarnish. Like imagine going through all the things with Jesus for those three years, and then he's crucified, and he dies on a cross. He resurrects from the grave. He appears to you behind locked doors, and he says this. As the Father sent me to do that, I am sending you. Now, how would you feel? So not only would I be a little taken back that I'm seeing the resurrected Jesus before me, Sam, now I have the same mission. And what is that? To deny myself, carry my cross, love my neighbor, put others before me. All the disciples died a martyr's death except for John who was exiled. Right, like Jesus tells them, the Father sent me and I am sending you. And this is not the first time he said this in scripture. In his high priestly prayer, he prayed that as the Father sent him into the world, he has sent the disciples into the world. Why? To go be a light, just as the nation of Israel was supposed to be. To go be missionaries to the world and spread the gospel, excuse me, (coughs) that there is a, a mission to be had. But we miss this because we go through our tradition, we dress up nice, we go to church, We make a big deal of the resurrection. We post the pictures on Instagram. I did it. You did it. And then we go home, and we wake up Monday morning, and we fill our calendar with whatever we want to do that day as if we didn't experience the resurrection for ourselves. College students, don't you want a different life if you're going to live Christianity out? Man, I tell people, if you are living Christianity out without the intent to really live for Christ, there are so much more fun ways to live. (laughs) Like, seriously, going through the motions of Christianity is awful. (laughs) Like, going through the motions and playing religion is not fun for anybody. Like, it is terrible. You have to put on a second face everywhere you go just to keep the church people convinced. Like, it's terrible. Don't fake it. Because that's not the plan that God has for you. God does not want you to go through a religious routine. He wants you to walk every day with a living Messiah who loves you and knows you. And then he's given you a place to play in the kingdom. He's given you a role. He's given you skills and gifts and abilities to back those up. That's the amazing thing about it is that you have a role because you have gifts to be had. Some of the things I wrote down in my notes on this is that when you see the disciples (laughs) gathered behind the locked doors, terrified, Colossians, One of the biggest changes in the disciples from this moment to Acts is their confidence. Like their confidence changes when Jesus gives the great commission. When they they receive the Holy Spirit, when they are told the mission, their confidence begins to change. Has yours? Because, man, how, how dare we ever think that somebody at our work would say something about us being associated with Jesus Christ so we hide our faith. What kind of life is that? It's not one I want. Who would we ever think that when we're going through a hard time, we can't tell people at church because we think their lives are perfect? Man, how how much of a lie is that from the devil? But we got people believing it every single day. When you look at the the disciples' confidence change. I mean, look at Peter. Peter denied Jesus three times. He's held up, hidden in here. And then you go to Acts chapter 2. And you're welcome to turn over there. It's not far in your Bible. You see that he's denied Jesus. You see that he has been hiding. And then all of a sudden, you get to Acts chapter 2. He has the Holy Spirit of God, and Peter starts preaching. And he preaches Christ crucified. He preaches Christ resurrected from the dead. His confidence has changed. If you're a believer who truly believes in the resurrection, has your confidence about your faith changed? Look at what Peter says. This is his sermon starting in verse 14, and then we're going to skip down. Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice, and proclaimed to them, 
Fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. I love that Peter had to tell him to pay attention because dealing with college students, sometimes I got to tell you to pay attention too. Amen. But listen, I drift off in service. Sometimes Brother Steve has to tell me, pay attention too. We're all in the boat. Amen. One person's with me. Peter says, pay attention. And I tell you, pay attention. Look at verse 22. Here's the sermon. It doesn't miss. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Now, pause. This is the same guy that denied Jesus three times. Hold up. This is the same guy that was just hidden in a locked door, scared to death of the Jews. And look who he's preaching to. It's amazing how much the Holy Spirit will change your confidence when you begin to truly live for him. Peter says this. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. And all God's people said, amen. For David says of him, here's a cross reference, Peter's cross reference. I saw the Lord ever before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the past of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch of David. He is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. Verse 32, God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 36, therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Verse 37, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Look at that question. What should we do? There is a an action that has to follow your heart truly hearing the gospel. Their first question is, what do we do? Like, what's my part? What do I do? Where do I go? What do I say? If this is true, if there's a God who died for me and rose from the grave and wants me to follow him and then do things for him in his name, tell me what they are and I'll do them. Is that your life and is that mine? Did we wake up this morning after celebrating Easter and say, God, what do I do today? What do you have for me? What is your schedule? What is your plan? Guys, I know it sounds crazy, but I'm telling you, that is the Christian life. That what we celebrate on Sunday must change us during the week because there is nothing more insulting to a lost world when we celebrate a dead man coming back to life and then not go tell them about it personally. There ain't nothing more insulting than to dress up and post the pictures and post the verses and then never go tell somebody verbally about Jesus. There is nothing more insulting to the lost world. You're scared of stepping on toes by telling them your theology. You and I are scared to get in their way by telling them that we really believe in Jesus. But I got to tell you, at 21 years old, when I didn't believe in Jesus, the most insulting thing you could do to me as a Christian is not stop me and tell me that I'm going to hell. There's nothing 
more insulting. So let me ask you and let me ask myself, what is worth not living as a missionary if he rose from the dead? What's worth it in your family? What's worth it in your neighborhood? What's worth it in your dorms? What's worth it at your work? What's worth it in your classes if he rose from the dead to not do something about it? Look what Peter says. Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. Confidence. Calling. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. College students, have you been sent? If you know the Lord, you have. My question is, are you going? Who are you going to? My final thing. Number three, don't be faithless, but believe. Don't be faithless, but believe. Verse 24 of John 20. But Thomas, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, we've seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. A week later, his disciples were indoors again and Thomas was with them. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. Thomas encountered a lot in this moment. He experienced testimonies, testimonies from his friends, life change in his friends, and yet Thomas does not believe. A lot of people love to say doubting Thomas, but he's being honest <laughs> that he does not believe. And that's why Easter, the dangerous part of it is when you come, you hear testimonies, you see videos, you see the worship, you see the scripture but nothing can change your heart except an encounter with the living God. When your heart comes face to face with Jesus, that changes you. When your eyes have seen what he has done in your life and in the scriptures, that changes you. Thomas asked not just for sight of what Christ has done, but to touch Jesus, to be close and to be intimate with the resurrected Jesus. And Jesus meets him right where he is. What's crazy is about this text is that Jesus recites everything back to Thomas that he said he needed in order to believe. And Thomas still had a choice. The truth is, it's a rebuke. I love this quote from Spurgeon on this. The whole conversation was indeed a rebuke, but so veiled with love that Thomas could scarcely think it was. And that's how Jesus speaks. Can you imagine the intimacy of this moment? And then he ends with, don't be Faithless, but believe.
Thomas refers to Jesus with two words and titles of deity. He says Lord and he says God. Two titles that are referring to his deity. This means that in this moment, that Thomas' testimony is that he's had a change of heart. He has had a change of mind. And he's in awe of his resurrected friend and his resurrected Savior. So if you are a believer, is that the gospel that wakes you up in the morning, that puts your feet on the floor, that takes you to school, that takes you to work, that brought you here tonight? Is it that gospel that wakes you up every single day? The whole idea of I'm going to see a victory is that you and me are proclaiming something out of faith, that we are believing there is a victory we fight from, and there is a greater victory to come, that as we continue to live out our earthly life, that our eyes are looking for the second coming of Jesus. So, man, in your finances, in your family, in your job situation, in your home situation, your living situation, in your friendships, in your degree, in all the things you pick, do you believe in faith that there is victory in Christ and that he is working all things together for, his, for your good and for his glory?